Uh, if you uh, brought a Bible with you, you can uh, turn it on or open it up or however you brought it to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will have the words uh, projected for you. Uh, let it be known we do um, have some free Bibles to give away. We love to give away Bibles. So uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, uh, there's some Bibles on the table on, as you uh, head out. You, you can grab one now if you'd like to follow along from the version that I use, that I read and preach from, which is the English Standard Version. Uh, so please uh, feel free to make use of that if you would, uh, if you would uh, need a Bible. Um, so in my family, uh, my wife and I, one of us is the, the, the cook and one of us is the baker. Um, I'll let you guess for a minute. I'm the cook. Um, I prefer cooking to baking any day of the week. Uh, baking is way too meticulous. Right? You have to measure things. And if you mismeasure, it's game over, right? It is very meticulous. It's very recipe-oriented. Cooking, on the other hand, at least my interpretation of cooking, is that it is much more kind of go with the flow. I'm, a, I'm kind of a look at the picture and then just put it together, you know, play with some flavors. And for the most part, I think anybody that's eaten in my house or my wife, I think, would, would definitely agree with this, that for the most part, it turns out all right. And so I... I think sometimes what we do with the Bible is we treat it more like a baking recipe. Like as though if we were so precise with the things it said, it would guarantee this, this fruitful product, this wonderful, glorious baked good. And, and actually, the Bible is something entirely different. Regardless of your relationship with Christianity and the Bible, the Bible is not a recipe to be followed. It's actually a story to enter into. From the opening page to the closing page, it's one big story. It's a story of God meeting our rebellion with his rescue, meeting our sin with his salvation, meeting our guilt with his grace, meeting our badness with his goodness. It's what the Bible speaks of. And it's a story that we're to be consumed by that can actually change everything about us. So today we are going to begin looking at a passage in chapter 5 which extensively talks about marriage. And if we look at this passage as a recipe for success, we actually undermine its entire meaning. And so today we're going to look at this more as the big story and how we enter into it and then what that means for marriage. And so if you're here today and perhaps you're single, you cannot check out. This passage is for all of us because this passage is way more about uh, is, is more about the gospel than it is about just marriage. This passage is for single people and for married people, people that are married both happily and unhappily. It's for divorced people. It's for widowed people. It's for teenagers. It's for single parent families. It's for two parent families. It's for everybody in this room. This passage is for today. So let's look today at our passage, which begins in chapter 5 of Ephesians. And I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 21, which is actually where I left off last week, going down through verse 33. This is the word of the Lord for us today. The Apostle Paul writes, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, 
love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the inerrant and infallible and inspired word of the living God. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we come and we, we want to hear from you. Lord, there are many things and people in this world that, that are speaking truths to us. And Lord, we ask that you would now teach us from your word. And so come, Holy Spirit, fill this space, soften hearts, and help us uh, to see uh, the work of Jesus in this passage. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's start off this morning by talking about Plato. Plato, everybody's familiar with a little bit of Plato. Whether you have kids or not, it's, it's kind of this, this fun, moldable, you know, colorful, some kids think it's tasteful uh, kind of toy. Uh, I don't think you probably know about the origin of Plato. Mostly just preachers come up with random connections. And so let me share the origins, the original intended purpose behind Plato. Plato was invented in the 1930s, and Plato was invented in a time when homes were primarily coal-run homes, and so their heating systems would put a soot on the wall. And uh, if you're familiar with Plato and also Silly Putty, they can kind of pick up some of this stuff, right? And so in the 30s, Plato was invented to clean a wallpaper, vinyl wallpaper. It was, it was invented to, to clean that soot off. Well, as time went on and inventions, you know, progressed, in the 50s, Plato became pretty much useless because homes were now natural gas-heated. And so it wasn't primarily coal-based, and, and so there wasn't the soot, and so there really wasn't the need for Plato anymore. Well, some inventive marketer repurposed or recreated the function and use of Plato, and they sold it to an educator who then turned it into to what we now know as Plato, you know, the mess, the clay, the, the colorful stuff. And so what was once intended for something got repurposed for another and actually has exploded. You see, marriage is similar to that in this way, that we are actually living in our own reinvention of marriage. That's my argument for today. I'm actually going to suggest that God originally designed and invented marriage for something different than many of us think. And so what is it that we think is the purpose of marriage? What does culture tell us is the purpose of marriage? Well, there's many varieties of answers of that. Some of it would be perhaps procreation, having children is, is, is the purpose of marriage. Or maybe it's just um, happiness and joy. Or maybe it's just it's, it's sexual fulfillment. Or maybe it's just uh, a complement or a strengthening of society economically, that when families are together, that it strengthens our economy. All of those are certainly true of marriage. It's, it's absolutely a byproduct of marriage, but I would suggest that it's actually not the purpose of marriage. Here's my argument today that I want us to see from this passage. 
I want us to see that the purpose of marriage is to put God's grace on display. To put the work of His Son, Jesus, primarily for the world to see. And marriage is the primary means that God has invented for that to happen. So here's the, here's the big idea, the big takeaway, is that I want to, you to see that the mystery of marriage is revealed when the mirror of the gospel is reflected. Let me repeat that one time in case you're a note taker. The mystery of marriage is revealed when the mirror of the gospel is reflected. Before we dive into the text, let me put a kind of a, a baseline definition of marriage that, that I've come up with that I, that I hope that you find helpful. Here's how I would define marriage. That marriage is two flawed people coming together to create a space of trust, love, and acceptance. Okay? Two flawed people, broken individuals, coming together to create a space that's filled with trust, love, and acceptance. So, do you want to have a good marriage? Well, you need the secret sauce. The secret sauce is always the key to a good burger, right? This is my second reference to In-N-Out Burger today. <laughs> Anybody taking notes on that? In-N-Out Burger, it's all about the sauce. You have to have the secret sauce. Otherwise, it's a pretty plain Jane burger, right? The secret sauce is where it's at. So do you want to know what the secret sauce for a good marriage is? It's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the secret sauce. It's the power of marriage, and it's the pattern for marriage. Here's what we're going to do today. Um, I kind of got the cold sweats. This is the second sermon in a couple of weeks that I've, that I've struggled with. And this is such an important passage that I've decided instead of staying here long and missing our food truck, you'll hear about that in a minute, instead of going long, I'm going to make this a two-part sermon. It's that important. So we're not going to have really one long sermon. We're going to have two kind of disposable, kind of edible type of sermon. So today, we are going to look at this passage and really focus on just a couple of verses, but we're going to look at the why of marriage. I think you have to understand this before we get to part two, which is the how of marriage. So today, we are going to flesh out, and we're going to be all over the Bible. Like, I want you to see that this is coming from the Bible. I'm not making this up. It's from the Bible. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of hop around a little bit, and we're going to look at the why of the marriage. And then next week, this is the hook for visitors. Come back next week. You, you just It's going to be unfulfilling. You're going to want to hear how I handle wives submitting to their husbands. So come back next week, and we will flesh out the how of marriage. Yeah, that is a preacher trick. I just hooked you into coming back next week. So here is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at three things that marriage does Marriage reflects eternity, marriage reflects intimacy, and marriage reflects selflessness. Let's look at these in turn. Marriage reflects eternity. Here's the verse we're primarily focusing on today. It's verse 31 and verse 32 of the passage. Paul quotes the Old Testament. He quotes the passage that says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This quote is from Genesis chapter 2. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it's not very far in. It's the second chapter of the Bible. And this is before sin had entered into the world. And so marriage is actually an institution that was designed before sin entered into anything. And let me give you a brief synopsis of what happens. God has created the world in the space of five days. On the sixth day, he creates man. He creates Adam. He takes him out of the dust of the earth. He blows into him life. He comes into life and existence. He's in the garden. 
Adam is living and working with and for God. Work is before the fall too, so there's that. But he's working these long, tiring work days with God in his presence. And at the end of the day, Adam is lonely. And God sees his loneliness and meets his need by providing for him a wife. And so the wife comes in and they are told that they are to become one flesh. It's a union. It is a coming together of two not yet flawed at that point, but soon to be flawed people to create a space of trust, love, and acceptance. That was their role. And so here God tells us that the first wedding, his, the, the design behind it was to show us that God wants us to experience fullness through a union with him and a union with someone else. And so here, from the very beginning, God begins to explain the gospel to us through marriage. So here's the point. The gospel and marriage explain each other. Um, I think many of us might think that marriage was an invention that was maybe even man-made, but even if we would admit that it's God-designed, even if we would go so far, we think that perhaps the Bible makes connections with it after the fact. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, we think that maybe Paul's saying, all right, I'm looking for an example of how we can communicate the union between God and his people. Uh, marriage, there it is. Marriage is kind of like that, you know, two people coming together. Actually, what God is saying, what I want to communicate is how from the very beginning, it has always been this pattern. God united with his people. Therefore, I invented marriage. You see how that works? Um, in John chapter 17, this is one of the, the New Testament gospel accounts. This is towards the end of Jesus' life. And towards the end of his life, he says this prayer in John chapter 17, which I'm going to read a portion of. And he says this prayer, and he's praying to God, his Father, and he's talking about his people, the, the believers that were with him. And he says this in his prayer. This is Jesus speaking. He says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, listen to this, here's the point. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is saying that the union that he and the Father had is the union that is offered to us through him. See, marriage is the temporal pattern for that eternal union. That God, from before anything ever existed, he had not made anything, he has always existed, he always will exist, that God has existed in perfect union with himself. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And in that union, there was no combative spirit. There was no kind of fighting out for the glory it was a mutual relationship that loved the other more than it loved the self. And so the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Father, and vice versa, and every combination in between. And it was perfect union. And that's what God's showing us in the gospel. What we'll see is how that union came apart so that we could too have that. So marriage firstly reflects, uh, it firstly reflects eternity, this eternal union. Union. Secondly, marriage reflects intimacy. 
Um, I am a bit scored and hot about how our Western-minded dating system has come about. Uh, just let me vent for a minute. So the way Americans date is completely flawed, right? Here's how we date. We hide our flaws from the other person, right? The whole system is based on hiding your imperfections and shining your, the good qualities that you have. Uh, I remember early on in, in our relationship, Heather and I's relationship, we were hanging out, uh, kind of watching movies, and we kind of, we'd been together for a little while, and most of our dates at that point had been kind of movies and restaurants, kind of the, the, the lifestyle of, of dating that it is, and, and pretty much we were broke. And so at this point, it was like, you know, we just need to, just need to cook a meal and just kind of hang out. And I vividly remember, this is kind of one of the funny memories I have of Heather, she came to me that night, and she said, Adam, I need to tell you something. I said, all right, what's, what's going on? She goes, I don't always wear jeans. I wear sweats sometimes. <laughs> and, and I was just like, okay, it's going to be all right. So like, she had been hiding this flaw that her dress was always on point and her makeup was on fleek and all of that stuff. But listen, she, she was hiding her flaws from me. Uh, and it's no wonder that when, you, you all don't do much counseling, but I'll do a little bit of it dabbling in some stuff. It's no wonder that the common refrain for a wife that's struggling in her marriage is, this is not the man I married. Because my answer is, you're right, it's not. It is not the man you thought you married. And so the problem with marriage is that it's primarily about us. But this, in this flawed system, and the gospel speaks into it because in Genesis chapter 2 is included this little verse at the end of the section that Paul quotes that says, And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed of it. When sin came into the world, shame came with it. And so did clothing. And so here in the garden, without sin, is this ability to show who you are, to be vulnerable, and to know that you're loved. You see, the gospel about Jesus reveals our flaws in a way that leads us to intimacy with God. Um, another reference to kind of Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, not a direct quote or anything, but in his ministry, he frequently encountered people. And the, the Bible frequently records that Jesus knew their hearts. He would come into a scene and he would say, and Jesus, knowing their hearts. And this was kind of a, a hint that Jesus knew everybody inside and out, and yet he still pursued them. It was the ultimate example of vulnerability met with love and acceptance. And so here's what the gospel tells us, is that we are completely known by God, and yet we're still loved. And if that's not kind of, if that's not settling with you, then you haven't been honest with who you are. I mean, God knows you, all of you, inside and out. There's not a hidden thought, a hidden secret, a hidden act, a hidden word. He's completely exposed you, yet he still loves you. And that begins to melt you when you begin to realize the depth of that. Romans chapter 5 tells us this. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
That is profound. That should shake you to your core. That you can be known by God and loved by God. And if you are fully known and fully loved by God, that is the deepest level of intimacy you'll ever experience. And marriage is the place where a willingness to be known by the other person and exposed should be safe. Um, There is no closer proximity that you'll ever get to another person than marriage. It's where everything comes off, literally speaking, if you get the innuendo, everything comes off and there is a full transparency and vulnerability with another broken and flawed person and you're saying, love me in spite of me. And if you don't believe the gospel, that is a very unsafe position to be in. But if you believe the gospel, that God will know you, yet never reject you, you can be vulnerable in marriage. See how that works? The gospel is that power and that pattern for a good marriage. If you can believe that, your spouse will never have to be your savior. Because that's how we function in marriage. That the spouse is supposed to be the one who gives us our needs. And when those needs are not met, we're unsatisfied and we're done. But the gospel speaks a better word to that. The gospel tells us that it can create a space of love, trust, and acceptance because of what Christ has done for us. So let's lastly look at how marriage reflects selflessness. I am completely convinced that it is a fight for us to escape culture's definition of marriage. I would define uh, the, the, the definition that marriage is given by culture as me marriage. Me marriage asks questions like, what's in it for me? And when we ask questions like, what's in it for me, and we don't get what we want, we're done. The needs aren't being met, so I'll move on and find my needs to be met somewhere else. Well, how does the gospel speak to that? Another Bible passage is in Philippians chapter 2, and it speaks of Jesus, and it This is the Apostle Paul writing. Let me read this passage. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the power and the pattern of the gospel in your marriage. It's selflessness. It's utter humility. It's a willingness to forsake your rights. It's a desire to pursue the good of your spouse at the exposure of yourself and even at the expense of yourself. You see, Jesus willingly let go of his divine rights for his spouse, his people, his church, You see, that triune union that I described, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, it was ripped apart when Jesus became man. He left the perfect eternal union of the Godhead and he came to us to become like us, to suffer for us. And when we begin to grasp the weight and the depth of what Christ did in that separation of that union, we'll begin to look at our marriages in an entirely, entirely new light. 
You see, many of us think that the darkest moment for Jesus in his life was the cross, the suffering, the physical torment of it. And, and it was physically tormenting, don't get me wrong. But the actual, the, the worst part about the entire event was when God the Father, whom he had dwelt with from all eternity, turned his back on him and abandoned him. Jesus willingly took the rejection so we could have the acceptance. He willingly poured out, took God's wrath, poured out upon him so that we could experience God's love in him. See, the, the power of the gospel, it informs the pattern for your marriage. It does. Jesus gave everything to have you and nothing can take that away. You might have a terrible spouse. This is not conditional. God's love is unconditional. You might be in a, in a broken relationship that is irreparable in your mind. But you can know this, that Jesus gave everything to have you, so you're free to give everything away. You need nothing else. You can be in a bad marriage and not have your needs met. You can. Why? Because Christ loved you. You can be in a seemingly irreparable situation and know that your rejection is not ultimate because Christ loved you. Let me conclude with this reference. Um, the Bible begins and it ends with a wedding. We've talked about the wedding in the garden, but, but the entire story concludes actually with a, a grand wedding, and it's in a city. So the conclusion of the Bible, actually in Revelation chapter 19, it talks about this wedding union in Revelation chapter 19. Let me read that passage to you. It says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you know who God's inviting to that marriage supper? The worst kind of people. He's inviting the broken people. He's inviting the needy people. He's inviting the sin-filled people. And he comes and he gathers those people and he meets the needs that were not met in this world. He's inviting the divorced and angry, the single and lonely, the married and unhappy. He invites anyone who sees their need for a true and better spouse. And he finds that in Jesus Christ. Do you know what's required to come to this wedding supper that Jesus is preparing for us unstained garments there is no imperfection that will be allowed at this table and so when you're honest with yourself you know that your righteousness will never be enough you will never clothe yourself with enough merit you'll never be clean enough you'll never be good enough you'll never be slim enough you'll never be fast enough you'll never be fit enough you will never be enough but the gospel offers you enough because what the gospel tells us is that Jesus, by taking your death in your place, he offers you his righteousness. And so when God sees you by faith in Christ, you are clothed with Jesus' righteousness, the unstained, undefiled garments of a king. And that's what makes you acceptable to come into this wedding supper. Do you know my favorite part of a wedding? I love when the bride comes down the aisle, but the best part of the wedding is watching the groom receive his bride. 
Because the groom oftentimes is moved to tears watching his bride come down the aisle towards him. That's the picture the Bible gives us of God. Do you believe that God would cry as you come to him? That he would weep over you walking down the aisle towards his perfection? Do you believe that that righteousness is good enough to melt God Almighty? Because the Bible says it is. Will you consider this an invitation today? The bridegroom Jesus is awaiting his people. He offers you cleansing. He offers you hope because he offers you himself. That's the gospel and the power of it in marriage. The power and the pattern of the gospel for our marriage. Now let's next week hear how to flesh that out in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, sometimes it's hard for us to understand truly how deeply you love us. Lord, many of us know that in theory. Many of us know that because we grew up around Sunday school or we heard our parents sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But it's just been so theoretical. It has never traveled to our hearts. And so Lord, I pray that even today, that by your spirit, that you would show us how deeply you love us. And when that love changes us, it can help us to love each other better. So Lord, would you transform our marriages and our friendships and our work life and our parenting by the power of that gospel? Would you do it for your own sake? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.